always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right From the time Hitler invaded Poland on 1 September 1939 until the defeat of Japan, World War II, or the Great Patriotic War, as the Russians like to call it, had been an absolute bonanza for Stalin. Sure, tens of millions of Russians had died, been shockingly wounded, been psychologically damaged, but for Stalin that was all the cost of doing business, building an enormous empire in just six short years. Stalin's view of the horrors of World War II is captured in the comment he made during the Korean War. Things had stabilised at the 38th parallel, but it suited Stalin to keep the war going. But the Koreans and Chinese were losing a lot of men in the ongoing fighting. They begged Stalin to end the war. Stalin replied that there was no reason why the North Koreans and Chinese should not continue fighting. He replied, they have nothing to lose except for their men. Many of the soldiers fighting heroically for their Russian motherland suffered the loss of all four limbs, both legs, both arms. Those men were, quite frankly, rather unsightly and quite bad for morale. Stalin had them sent to towns above the Arctic Circle, so no one would have to look at them. The Russians called them samovars, like the Russian teapots that stand on four tiny stumps of legs. The Americans and the British, well especially the Americans, had made sure that the Russians were awash with their military and civilian equipment. Whole factories were even shipped to Russia by the Americans and assembled there. No American secrets were kept from them, except for the atomic bomb, and they easily got that. What with so many spies and fellow travellers in the US, including at the White House. Russia started the war just as being Russia, but when it was over it had all of Central Europe, a lot of territory that the Japanese had owned, and Stalin oversaw Mao Zedong taking over mainland China. At Tehran, Roosevelt and Churchill had given Stalin everything he wanted, or they hadn't been strong enough to oppose him and say no. Now at Yalta, Roosevelt again raised his desire to have the Russians help beat the Japanese, the empire of the rising sun, and end the war, a request he had made previously at Tehran, but now he needed to get it firmed up. And that's what this program is all about. Stalin had signed an agreement with Japan on 13 April 1941 that was absolutely vital to Russia. It was called the Soviet-Japanese Neutrality Pact. Both powers agreed to respect the other's territorial integrity. Russia recognised Japan's conquest of China, Manchukuo, and Japan recognised the Soviet position in Mongolia. If one of the signatories found itself at war with one or several third powers, it would remain neutral for the entire duration of the conflict. The Neutrality Pact would be in force for five years, and if neither party renounced it after four years, it would renew for another five. So the agreement would be in force through to April 1946, unless one of the parties broke their obligations. Stalin had scrupulously observed this agreement. That wasn't hard to do. It was extraordinarily useful to him. Well, at least until 1945. Stalin had been intending to invade Germany himself in 1941. That plan had gone west when the Germans invaded Russia and blew the Red Army away. 
In the following years, both powers, Russia and Japan, respected the agreement. It allowed Russia to move large numbers of tanks and troops from Asia to the west. That saved Moscow in the disastrous winter of 1941, and probably the Soviet Union. It allowed Japan to attack the Western powers in the Pacific. Everyone got something from it. By the time of the Tehran Conference in 1943 between the Big Three, Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill, Stalin had hinted, not on the record though, that within three months of the end of the war in Europe, in exchange for Russia taking possession of Mongolia and the Japanese islands of Sakhalin and Kuril, Russia would attack Japan. Stalin didn't want that reduced to writing though. He still had his pact with Japan. Russia had been strictly honouring the agreement with Japan. Russia was interning American airmen who landed on Russian soil after bombing raids on Japan. There were 110 American aircrew in Russian detention facilities. 60 had been allowed to escape at the time of the Tehran conference as a gesture of goodwill. But after that gesture, they continued to be locked up by the Russians. By the time of the Yalta conference, a lot had changed in the Pacific. America had taken the Mariana Islands, and that gave its Air Force bases that were able to reach the Japanese home islands, including Japan. Japanese suicide pilot attacks had begun in October 1944, indicating that they were going to fanatically fight. But Fleet Admiral Lay said, I was of the firm opinion that our war against Japan had progressed to the point where her defeat was only a matter of time and attrition. Therefore, we did not need Stalin's help to defeat our enemy in the Pacific. But there were other opinions that Japan would doggedly fight on. Roosevelt's briefing papers at Yalta contained only a negative outlook on the war with Japan, not the more positive point of view that seemed to reflect the majority opinion of U.S. military staff. A frustrated American intelligence officer, Admiral Ellis Zacharias, revealed that the more upbeat view briefing folder was somehow pigeonholed by someone in the assistant secretary's office and was never seen by Roosevelt. I get the feeling that Stalin's people, his spies and fellow travellers at the top of the US administration probably helped with this important folder getting misfiled. The negative point of view was that America would suffer 350,000 casualties in an amphibious operation on the Japanese home islands. That was the view of the by then jaded General Marshall. For him, everything in Europe had been going along nicely, and then wham! In December 1944, Hitler launched the Battle of the Bulge. Since the only briefing that Roosevelt had was a gloomy prediction of a bloody and still long war with Japan, General Marshall represented a strong line of opinion that said it was better to give Russia all of the equipment and supplies it would need to attack Japan and have Russians give their lives for the cause rather than Americans. When the topic of Japan came up at Yalta, it was almost as if Stalin already knew what was in it. No surprises there. Stalin now had additional demands. His insiders had doubtless tipped him off that Roosevelt needed his help. Stalin demanded that Port Arthur, taken by Japan in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, and now called Dairen, today's Chinese Dalian, be turned over to the USSR. He also wanted control of the railway lines of Manchuria connecting to Dairen and Vladivostok through Harbin. While Roosevelt remembered himself enough to say that it might perhaps be a good idea for him to talk to Chiang Kai-shek about giving Stalin Chinese territory and rights, he didn't object to Stalin's demand for a Soviet sphere of influence in northeastern China. This included not just outer Mongolia, but all of Manchuria. The Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek had been fighting to free that area from Japanese occupation since the war with Japan started for them in 1931. In theory, 
Details were still to be negotiated with Sheng, but the principle of Soviet domination of Mongolia and Manchuria was now agreed without Sheng being consulted at all. Stalin also demanded a share in the custody of Korea. He asked Roosevelt if he planned to station American troops in Korea. Roosevelt said no. That gave a green light to Stalin to invade northern Korea whenever the USSR entered the war with Japan. Stalin told Roosevelt that he was happy to help the Americans out. But Stalin said he, he would be happy to help the Americans. But they would have to give him the materials to fight the war in Asia. At this time, the United States was already sending Stalin 5 million tonnes of foodstuff, fuel and war materials in the fourth protocol of the Lend-Lease Agreement with Russia. This included 9,183 American trucks that had been shipped to Vladivostok in January 1945. The US Army Air Force had sent to Siberia via the Alaskan Air Route, known by the acronym ALSIB, nearly 8,000 warplanes before Yalta. Lend-Lease had already supplied Stalin's Far Eastern armies with enough weapons and supplies to give them a massive superiority over the Japanese Guangdong army many times over. Even though Russia had all of this, Stalin now demanded the special delivery by 30 June 1945 of two months' supply of food, fuel transport equipment and other supplies calculated on the needs of a force of 1,500,000 men, 3,000 tanks, 75,000 motor vehicles and 5,000 aeroplanes. This required extra Pacific tonnage of 860,140 tonnes of dry cargo and 206,000 tonnes of liquid. If the President delivered all of this, Stalin said, I would be happy to conquer Northern Asia for communism. Roosevelt agreed. Well, Stalin didn't say that he would be conquering all that territory for communism, but that was what he meant. In view of the president's hopeless performance at Yalta in his dealings with Stalin, people have asked whether Soviet agents and fellow travellers had rendered their final spectacular service for communism before Roosevelt died. Al Jahis, a Soviet agent identified in the Venona decrypts, played a role at Yalta in discussions about the United Nations and on China. On one notable occasion, he intervened to stress the importance which the United States attaches to forging unity between Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists and Mao's communists. Harry Hopkins was also a little active in his role as pro-Soviet whisperer in Roosevelt's ears at Yalta. At one point, he passed the president a note during a discussion of reparations to be demanded of the defeated Germans, which read... The Russians have given in so much at this conference that I don't think we should let them down. Exactly what the Soviets had given would not have been apparent to any observer. Mostly, though, Hopkins was fairly quiet at Yalta, scarcely leaving his room. His own health at Yalta was not much better than Roosevelt's. He would die on 29 January 1946. The Yalta meeting between Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin had taken place between 4 and 11 February 1945, out of the negotiations, Stalin was going to be given large chunks of Asia, Manchuoko, some Japanese islands and what would become known as North Korea. Stalin also negotiated with Chiang Kai-shek over Manchuria. Stalin knew about the bomb. Roosevelt's death on 12 April 1945 was no surprise, but was potentially a major blow to Russian plans in Asia. Sure, there was a lot to take that Roosevelt had given permission for, but it was likely that if Stalin could have grabbed more territory, the compliant Roosevelt would have given it to him. 
The one truth in world affairs has always been that boots on the ground is what counts. Stalin after Yalta and then the final victory over Hitler on 9 May 1945 by Russian reckoning now had to get as many boots, tanks and aircraft to Russia's border with Japan to take what Roosevelt had promised and more if it could. Oleg Smirnev was a soldier of the Red Army in Germany when the war ended. He was in East Prussia on V Day. That day he had emptied his pistol into the air, holstered it with finality and declared, Those were the last shots I shall ever fire. But he turned out very quickly to be wrong. Soon he was on a train heading to Asia with other soldiers of the Red Army. While his train was crossing through Lithuania, it came under attack from anti-communist partisans. The same was happening in Poland. There were many people throughout the countries of occupied Eastern Europe that resisted the Russians. That's a story I'll tell if I can in a later program. By early August 1945, 136,000 railway cars had transferred a million men, 100,000 trucks, 410 million rounds of ammunition, 3.2 million shells to the Far East. Even firewood had to be collected from forests in Siberia and shipped 400 miles to enable units deployed in the treeless regions of Asia where they were going to be based before they jumped off to attack the Japanese to cook their rations. 35,000 tonnes of fuel were needed on the Trans-Baikal front alone, requiring as much haulage capacity as ammunition. As part of Stalin's bargain with the Western Allies, as I said earlier in the program, he insisted that the US should help to feed and arm the Soviet soldiers, whose participation in the Eastern War was expected to save so many American lives. The Russian soldiers saw this and weren't impressed. Our friend Oleg Smirnov said, Guys rubbished the Americans for wanting to get other people to do their fighting. But that wasn't how Stalin saw it. If it was only going to cost Russian lives to grab large chunks of Asia, it was totally worth it. Although on paper the Japanese Guangdong army was formidable, the years of war had seen its best men sent away to China and to fight the Americans in the Pacific. Japan had, after all, its neutrality pact with Russia and so had no worries of any fighting happening with the Russians. Marshal Vasilevsky's plan for the attack in the Far East were finally ready, all troops and supplies had been assembled. He gave the orders for the Red Army to unleash its attack on Japan on 11 August 1945. But on 7 August 1945, the Americans dropped their first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. That could mean that Japan would surrender at any moment. Before Stalin could make his grab, Vasilevsky was called by Moscow. His attack had to start two days earlier, on the 9th. At 11am on 9th August, the second American atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. The Russian invasion had been just started 11 hours before that, after midnight on that same day. The Japanese recognised the impossibility of now continuing the war and offered to surrender. But they had one condition. Hirohito's ruling house had to be preserved. President Truman said no. It took another five days, 15 August, before the Japanese would agree just to an unconditional surrender. That was a gift to the Russians as their armies sped as fast as they could to conquer Manchurko. As soon as the Japanese put their unsuccessful offer to the Americans, Stalin called Chiang Kai-shek's Moscow envoy to meet with him. He quickly needed to stitch up a deal over Manchuria. Orders from Tokyo to the Guangdong army to surrender were delayed for some reason for two days until 17 August. The Russians didn't respond 
to overtures from that army to end hostilities. They didn't agree to the ceasefire on 19th August, but their armies kept advancing for another two weeks to scoop up all of the territory that they wanted. During that time, the Soviet fleet landed troops on the Korean Peninsula and the Japanese islands of Sakhalin and Kuril. On 5 September, nearly 17 days after the ceasefire and three weeks after Hirohito's surrender, the Red Army finally came to a halt. They had seized the Korean Peninsula down to the 38th parallel. Their forces were just short of the Japanese home island of Hokkaido. The Russians stopped where they did only because the new president, Truman, had drawn lines which limited Russian territory in his letter to Stalin of 16 August. The Americans didn't have any troops on the Korean Peninsula until 7 September at Incheon. Truman clearly had something that Roosevelt didn't. The Russians could easily have overrun the whole of the Korean Peninsula. They didn't yet know how to read this new president, who had a bomb of awesome destructive power in his possession and had already limited Russian territorial gains. Back in May, Stalin had suggested to the compliant Harry Hopkins that the Russians should occupy the northern half of Hokkaido to take the surrender of the Japanese troops. He didn't have an answer to that from Roosevelt. Truman, when asked, said no. He wasn't Roosevelt. About 3.5 million Japanese and 20 million Koreans living south of the 38th parallel were saved from falling into the new Soviet empire. After Truman refused to let the Russians land on Hokkaido, the Russians retaliated by refusing Truman's request for an airbase in the Kuril Islands. The Iron Curtain had settled its boundaries and had now descended in this part of Asia. The bigger prize, China, was something that Stalin was still working on. Mao and Chiang Kai-shek would work things out. Roosevelt's friend in Washington would make sure that Chiang stopped getting Allied aid and was seen as a troublemaker who would not come to an arrangement with Mao who, like Stalin, wanted everything. Stalin now had 40 million new subjects for communism in Manchuria alone. 640,000 Japanese prisoners were shipped off to labour camps in Siberia. More than 62,000 of them would die in captivity. While the woke left continue to complain bitterly about the transatlantic slave trade of many hundreds of years ago, they never raise a voice about the recent, very recent, communist slavery, which involved far more people than the transatlantic slavery trade ever did. Nearly two billion worth of industrial property and assorted Manchurian war booty was shipped by Russia back to Moscow in 50,000 railway cars. The Red Army rape machine had also arrived in the occupied territories in Asia. That story is not as well known as to the numbers of women that fell victim to them in Germany and Central Europe. In a book called A Continent Erupts, historian Richard Spector tells us that north of the 38th parallel, Soviet soldiers indulged in rape so frequently that women enjoying the new workers' paradise of North Korea began disguising themselves as men to avoid the attention of their Red Army predators. Towards the beginning of the series of programs, I quoted what Hamilton Fish III, a congressman from western New York, had said on his regular nationally syndicated radio broadcast in the 1930s before World War II. Opposed though I am to Nazism, I am certain that American mothers will not willingly sacrifice their sons to make the world safe for communism. On 8 June 1978, Russia's most influential man on the horrors of communism addressed the graduation class at Harvard. What he had to say the inconvenient truths that he had learnt about America were not what his audience wanted to hear. They wanted to hear fawning gratitude 
at him being given a place of sanctuary in America to escape the evils of communism. What he found in America was not what he was looking for, although he made it clear that socialism was still worse beyond comparison. He had this to say about the American and British alliance with Stalin in World War II. I have had occasion already to say that in the 20th century, Western democracy has not won any major war without help and protection from a powerful continental ally whose philosophy and ideology it did not question. In World War II against Hitler, instead of winning that war with its own forces, which it would certainly have been sufficient, Western democracy grew and cultivated another enemy who would prove worse as Hitler never had so many resources and so many people, nor did he offer any attractive ideas or have a large number of supporters in the West as the Soviet Union. Thanks for joining me in this program, The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything, you might want to catch up with me at my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer. If you liked this program, you'll definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E.